Welcome to Forward, the podcast that introduces you to the humanities. I'm your host, Alison Innes. In each episode, I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. As regular listeners know, this series, we're talking to graduate students in our MA and PhD programs. And I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Alex Wedler, who is in the MA English program and is also a graduate of the English undergrad program. Alex's research looks at attachment to place, ideas of exile, and the absence of place. And we're going to be talking about some interesting works of literature today. There's also an interesting connection with episode two of series two, when we talked with Rob Alexander on literary journalism. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, get that one queued up for when we're done here. So welcome, Alex. Hi. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much for having me on here. It's a great pleasure. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what brought you to Brock and what led you to do an MA in English. Yeah. So I guess what brought me here specifically is, you know, obviously the convenience factor. I did my undergraduate at Brock, came for English, did the whole four years here, and I greatly, greatly enjoyed it. All the professors that I met and stuff and all the stuff I learned, very, 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 very good stuff. And originally, I, my original plan going into university was to go into teacher's college. I came here because I wanted to teach and stuff. And um, around, I want to say around third year, I kind of, I fell more, I felt, I kind of like fell in love and became very much enticed by the academia side of things. And I thought that was very interesting. And I had a lot of support from professors and such and, you know, and peers of mine from various, you know, places of my life kind of being like, yeah, you should do more with this. And like, I, I kind of. I came around to the idea of doing a master's and I kind of, I, I worked towards that in fourth year and, uh, and here I am. And I wanted to do it specifically at Brock, obviously because of the convenience. I live, I live in the, I live in the falls, so it's a short drive and, you know, not, not expensive and stuff, but also I was very interested in working more with a few certain professors here that inspired me to like me to go into, you know, what I'm going to be doing for my MRP and such. And, uh, just the environment at Brock is just overall really good. And I have a very strong attachment to this place and the, and the faculty, and I very much enjoy it. The connection with, uh, with our earlier podcast episode with Professor Rob Alexander, um, I didn't realize that um, when, when I first asked you to, to be a guest. So, I, so I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, we had talked with uh, Rob when he was in the process of planning a course, which you have just taken on eco-criticism and literary journalists journalism. So I'm really curious to know more. How did it go? What did you do? What uh, ideas and works did you explore? Yeah, it's funny. I was listening to that to that uh, that episode a few weeks ago and he said, "Oh, I'm playing this course." Like, "Oh, well, it obviously turned out well cuz uh yeah, I um the course was very um is very interesting. You know, I, I, it was uh, definitely one of the highlights so far of the of the grad program uh thus far. And essentially it ta- it combined ideas of eco-criticism like that that being like you know looking at literary texts and stuff and such with an, a kind of a, a lens geared towards the environment environmentalism and such and then combining that with um his specific his specific kind of like you know place of scholarship and literary journalism like that being like long form as opposed to things like newspaper articles or you know stuff you see on cnn and such where it's very like it's, it's, it's more geared towards like the temporary and it goes by very fast, whereas literary journalism is much more in the vein of usually takes the more of a more long form narrative, like interview based, like also like kind of it, 
it makes it more uh, there's, there's, I'm sure there's a better way to say it than just literary, but it makes it like it's um it's more it's in, in depth and yeah in depth in a way yeah yeah, yeah. and um yeah then the way that course was structured I think was very uh is very effective because it was um it, it weaved in like theories theory texts alongside more pra- like like more overt examples of literary journalism so um how he how he had it played out was one week we would look at a heavy a very heavily theory-based text like a text introduced us with a certain theory and then the next week we would he would have us we would read and discuss and um on um a more literary like a, a more overt example of literary journalism so something that was like you know one of the one of the texts i guess for the literary journalism aspect that struck out to me was john valance the tiger and that is you know an account of this community out in somewhere in like rural, like I, I don't know exactly, like rural Russia. I can't remember what it's called, but in, in, in like the forest, in a foresty area, right? And it's like talking about these people and their community and their encounters with like their relationship to the land, that being through like tigers. And then they're like how they, it specifically deals with a certain tiger who's kind of gone rogue in a way and is, you know, aggressing on people. But then it's, it unfolds in a very literary manner, like to the point where you you might forget that there was someone actually there interviewing people. The pre- the presence of like through the journalist, it, it varies to, from text to text, but in a text like the Tiger, like it's very much not there, and it's like these character these people that are interviewed they become characters in a way that we actually talk about that can sometimes be problematic thinking of these people as as characters and not real people, but that's a that's a whole different thing. <laughs> that, I, that I imagine was a big part of your your discussions in, in in class. Yeah, for some of the text, yeah, but for for the tiger specifically, I thought it was very interesting how it was them navigating their relationship with this very harsh land, with these harsh predators and these like you know these just constant danger. But at the same time, there's this weird comfort they have, right? Like they're out in the forest and they see it and, and they see this place and. Oh, that it was, it, they call it. It was called the taiga, like that, like that being like T A I G A, right? It's kind of funny that and tiger. That was that was that was interesting. But like in a way, that's very fitting, right? Because the tiger is very much the tiger is very much a part of the taiga, and it's um like they respect it and revere it in this we in this way where it's not all fear, and so it was weird when that one specific tiger seemingly started just going rogue off the natural order, quote unquote, natural order. That being one of the more actual examples of overt, this is what literary journalism is. But on the theory, on the more, on the more theoretical side, we read things from like some, some texts being very widely known things like Rachel Carson's silent spring, which is like a lot, a lot of that talks about the chemicals in that. We just like, stuff like chemicals that we spray on like the plants and this and that and like all sorts of ways how that these little chemicals they get in the land and they where they get inside us like that is like a very heavy theory based text and then we apply theories like that and we apply them to the specific literary case pieces of journalism like books and you looked at pain the land as well right and which is uh which is I guess I guess it wouldn't be a graphic novel, but a a graphic book, um, an illustrated comic type form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paying the Land is was really cool because that was um, 
the author, Joe Sacco, terms it. He has a specific term called comic journalism, I believe is what he terms it. And it's, um, which is cool, it's very, very fitting. Um, it's, and essentially what that book is doing, it's looking at, he goes to this community of indigenous people, uh, the Dene, in the, in the northern territories of Canada. And he goes and he, he interviews a whole ton of them, and, like asks them, it delves into issues with obviously colonialism, as is inherent with anything like indigenous, like indigenous issues, and a lot of it comes back to their relationship with the land. And that text really stuck out to me specifically, not only because it was the only text of its kind of being like a, of being like you know a graphic novel, comic journalism, that sort of thing. Like that was obviously immediately interesting to me, but also just. The way that it kind of shook up idea, maybe ideas of indigenous land attachment and treatment that maybe would surprise people. More traditionally, a typical understanding of indigenous attachment to the land, indigenous relationship with the land, is something more akin to like a lot, like a like a lot of like respect and like like you associate that with like very heavy like pro environmentalism. Treat it with a lot of respect, and that of course was a lot there, and like a lot, a lot of that, a lot of that came up when talking to like older generations of of the, of the of the Dene that were there and they would reflect and illustrations would flash back and this and that to their time and like in these very like community oriented situations they had where like the title of paying the land comes from this idea where they have to pay the land back because the land is everything to them right and they have to it provides for them there needs to be a transaction there as if you know they bring like offerings as if it was you visiting a friend is what one of the comparisons was, right? And so it was respecting the land in that way, knowing that yes, it's 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 it, it's how we live, and can't get get can't get along without it. But at the same time, it's not this all giving benefactor. It, you know, you should give it respect in the way that you would give respect to a person, and the, that in, in general, that, that like that understanding of the land and the environment as its own kind of person strikes out to me just in my in my research in general. So this really was interesting to me. But then you have interviews with the younger generations, and it's not a hard binary between young and old generation, of course, right, as, as with anything, right? But it was a, a lot of times it was the younger generations that were interviewed, like members of the younger generations of the day are interviewed. And they see, like, they have a, maybe a different approach to it, it's surprising in the fact that like there was a surprising amount of support for things like fracking and oil drilling and like resource extraction in that way. From what I got from it, a lot of that came down to it being just a fact of living. Like the Western like capitalist view way of living has infiltrated these communities to the point where they have to like dig through the bowels of their land or like they like, have to they have to be okay with that. They feel they feel they, they feel they should be okay with that in a way and like the way that it's reconciled is interesting and like like i said like i was saying earlier it goes in the it kind of flies in the face of the idea of of these traditional ideas of indigenous understanding of the land of, of the land and um seeing that kind of like again not so much a generational clash but just like and i like a, a clash in like an understanding and in viewpoints right and how that kind of was reconciled or like was shown that could be reconciled in a way it was mm. I, I was I was very interested in that when um, reading that book, and I ended up writing a conference paper because the, the another I guess just format thing of that class that I liked was every week one person of the, one person of our cohort had to do a conference paper on one of the texts, and I ended up getting 
and I actually didn't even choose that text. I was the last one everyone had picked beforehand. And then I just was late to the party and I'm like, guess I'm doing this one. <laughs> but I, I'm very, it was, it was quite serendipitous because I, I, I quite enjoyed it. And I thought it was, it, it, was, it was very in line with other things I like talking about. So so it sounds like in that text and, and in the course in general, you really got into some of the um, nuances and tensions and complications with how different groups of people relate to the land and view the land and, and have an idea of their, of their place. Yeah, it did end up. A lot, a lot of that stuff was covered over like the, the length of a long amount of time and like the differing ways that these groups of people that maybe were not so for that maybe us in you know Canada or in the West or whatever aren't so familiar with and the way that it, it, it's interesting to see how different communities interact and understand their environment compared to us or just in general, right? And I think a lot, a lot of that came out in a lot of the theory that we studied and the relations to the theory, a lot of that revolved around how do we understand our place in the environment in, in different ways, depending on what you're faced with. Like in the tiger, how do you reckon with the fact that you could walk outside and there's uh, you walk out in the forest to hunt and you might just not make it back because there's a tiger there. But like there's that weird understanding that this place is dangerous, but it also is safety. It's like a paradox, like that kind of par- paradoxical sorry, way of thinking that has to be adopted that, you know, we're not very familiar, maybe many of us in Canada aren't familiar with. So it was very, very eye-opening, just like understanding these kinds of things and like reading about these things was very, it was cool. It was, quite frankly, it was cool. Like, it was, it, it really, it was, it was, it was very. So it sounds like that's a, so it sounds like that's a course that you would recommend. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Any day of the week. And he's such a great professor too. So I heard you give a paper um, back in December um, about Chernobyl. Um, was that part of this course, or was that a different course? No, that was this course. Oh, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. that was uh, so. Yeah what 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 were the ideas that you were looking at and exploring there in that paper? It was an assignment. It was an assignment for that course, the final paper, and there was um, I ended up tackling one of the texts that falls into the literary journalism aspect. Right, and the theory. Well, I combined I combined a theory text in that one, and um, but the, I looked at so Svetlana Alexievich's Chernobyl Prayer is what the book was called in 2016, I think. And what that text was was essentially a comp, excuse me, a compilation of witness interviews and witness testimonies of people who were directly affected by their Chernobyl disaster in '86, and. Um, and these witness testimonies range from anything to people who were, you know, firsthand, like, you know, people who had loved ones exposed to radiation and were therefore exposed firsthand and who were forcibly evacuated. And that I, I was concerned with a lot with a lot of that, the forced evacuation and stuff. And then to sometimes even to scientists and such who, you know, maybe had to be silenced by the government and stuff because Try, they tried to cover things up in a way, and even some of the more some of the interesting ones were also interviews with with soldiers who were forced to go in to the to the to the you know the heart of the radiation and, and such and have to clean it up because they couldn't send the rope or anything like robots or anything like that in there because it would melt because of the radiation. So the best thing they had and was the lives of these people, right? Like it was. I took that book and I thought it was very interesting. I combined it with one of the theoretical texts that we studied. And this was called Hyperobjects by Timothy Morton. I believe that came out in 2013. And the main 
The main idea that was discussed there that he posited was the idea of these things called hyperobjects. And these are just these massively large ideas and I guess just things in the world that we as people have an incredibly hard time and it's nigh impossible to fully wrap your head around it and like fully understand it in a way that like makes sense and that's easy to explain. And so one of the, it was throughout, like throughout, after we had read that book, it was, it was a very, it was, it was a confusing read, but like, I like, yeah, I'm just, cause the idea is confusing, right? That the idea by nature is just something that it's hard to get. My cohort and I, we would frequently uh, be like, oh, this thing's like a hyper object. And then, you know, I was like, well, Chernobyl is very, cause very much like a hyper object, the Chernobyl disaster. I made that kind of equation. It was very much a hyper object because it's this massive event that happened. And it's just something that is so hard to encapsulate down into just like, you can't just like to say something like the Chernobyl disaster was just massive nuclear meltdown. Well, there's way more to it than that. Like there was, you know, how that like like the different way that it affected all these different people, the way that it changed just just like general worldviews of nuclear energy and how did that affect the already the already the already crumbling USSR at the time? You know, like that that kind of thing, and the fact that like you could still see the um, effects of that today. And so there were there were three main things like main equations made that I, that kind of pad between the Chernobyl disaster and. Um, and Morton's hyperobject, the idea of the hyperobject, one of them being that the hyperobject is viscous in a way that it like sticks to you. And Chernobyl very much not only sticks to the person in the way of like radiation, right? That like you've been exposed to radiation and you know, you maybe you won't feel it, but you might eventually, right? That kind of thing, or your children might feel it, you know, that sort of thing. And um, also in the way of like, the way that it persists in societal imaginations, like I, like I was kind of touching on there, how we still, you think nuclear, your pro, your mind's going to go, your mind's probably going to, like the popular mind goes to Chernobyl. And we briefly, when we met, we briefly talked about the Chernobyl, the Chernobyl show that had come out. You got stuff like that, where it just brings it, it brings it to the forefront. Like there are things, like there are the things in popular media that often bring it to the forefront. And so then that way it's, viscous in the way it sticks to us, right? Like a hyper, like a hyper object was said to do. And, um, the, well, the second kind of equation was that it is, um, it transcends local boundaries. It makes like the local unlocal or past local, like it makes the local global, I guess, in a way, or at least, at least farther than local boundaries, because, you know, we're all set up in the world with all our hard boundaries with, borders and such but then Chernobyl disaster happened and the winds swept radiation all the way to places like Europe and like China like as, like as, as far as like China from within hours right like they had sirens going off in countries like like nuclear sirens of hazard like hazard warning sirens going off in places very far away from that disaster so that kind of it's this thing that it's like you first think it's local, right? Like, oh, whatever. I don't have to worry about that. It's far away. But it all of a sudden, it, it, it transcends that boundary because it's just that big. Yeah. And then it also um, psychologically and emotionally transcends that boundary too. I mean, we're in North America and I suppose students today were, yeah, students, a lot of most students today were born, you know, long after um, Chernobyl happened. 
and uh, yet it still is a place name that that has so much associated with it culturally and with, like we mentioned, the TV shows and books and that kind of thing too. Yeah, like it's a common, you know, you see some like in in you know, saying like fiction or whatever, you see some sort of deformed thing, like oh, I think it looks like it came out that thing looks like it came from Chernobyl, sort of thing. Like it's 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 a buzzword for the the malformed or like you know the mm-hmm. like the exposed in a in a negative way, right? And so in that way, it kind of as yeah, as well in that way, it's not only viscous, but not only viscous, but also transcending boundaries. And then the last equate, and so the last equation that I made with with Chernobyl and the hyperobject finally was the way that it operates on these massively long and huge time scales. But the important kind of thing that I found was interesting when learning about the hyperobject was these time scales aren't infinite though. It's not just forever because in a way that is the way that makes it almost too easy. It's like, like knowing it's forever. Okay, great. I can maybe reckon with that in some way, but knowing that no, something is like this hyperobject or, and we'll take obviously Chernobyl as the prize, the example, like the effects of this radiation are going to linger in the land and and we won't know how it works on people for like hundreds of years, like well past a human life, a human lifespan. One of the very, a very like poignant example on that, that from Alexievich's text that I recall when thinking about this point is a man, a man or a woman, a parent, I am wanting to know like what's going on with their their child, I believe, like how their exposure to radiation and the scientists say to them, well, we're not going to know for like hundreds of years. And he's like, well, I don't have hundreds of years. Like I need like, like these are things that I want to know now, but you just can't because it's the nature of this is just, it's just on this massively long time scale that we can't even physically encompass, right? Like with our lifespans. And so all that's to say in those ways, those are kind of the equations I made between you know, logically being able to assert, yeah, Chernobyl is, can be considered a hyper object in the view of Timothy Morton's theories and such. And so what I ended up doing with the paper itself, because I didn't just argue that I argued, yes, Chernobyl is a hyper object, but then I argued back and I said, Alexievich's, my, my, my central argument was that Alexievich's text works against the ideas of the hyper object as unknowable and incomprehensible and the way that it did this was it grounded these it grounded the understanding of the Chernobyl disaster in place whether this be and I whether this be in physical place or in like a social place some sort it boxed it in in this way that these interviews a lot that a lot of these interviews captured that it makes it knowable for them it made it understandable on a scale that like witnesses that like witness testimonies and the victims and such the residents of, the, of that land and such can understand in a way that having something to grab onto, right? Because something like the hyperobject, it's, it's, it sounds like this scary phenomenon. And it, it is in a lot of ways. Like Morton's common example that he, his best example that he uses for the hyperobject in the text is climate change, like as this hyperobject. And when you think about it like that, yeah, climate change is incredibly scary and we it's hard for us to wrap our heads around in a lot of ways and it transcends boundaries and all that. It, it fits the bill very well, right? I know I have a hard time rec- grabbing onto something like that, right? And just having something and then making that equation to something like Chernobyl and, and like the disaster there. It shows through the witness testimonies that they are different. They, had, they found different ways of anchoring themselves 
in a certain place, whether that be physical or whether that be the lack of or whether that be a social place in a way, like a place in like popular societal imaginings. And so I did this through three different ways. So the first way that I ended up tackling how Alexievich works against the, the Chernobyl works against Chernobyl as an unknowable hyperobject by grinding in place was looking at witness testimonies that focused on their physical place, like their home. And um, I looked at testimonies of display. Of, uh, a lot of it was testimonies of displacement or a refusal to leave. Like there were a lot of um, a lot of interviews of people who just didn't leave who just refused, right? Like there's one very long one of um, this old woman who eventually they're asked, okay, you probably should leave. And a lot of people said no, because they're like, well, I don't understand. Like, what do you, why am I leaving? Like and they said, there's radiation, it's invisible and it's everywhere, but you can't, you can't see it, but you have to leave. And so this, the, this old woman, she like stayed, like when I came down to the time for, I was like, okay, we're forcing you out now, like for your own good, you were being forcibly evacuated. This old woman stayed and it was just her talking about how she's the only one in her town, right? Like there's maybe one other person that lives further away, which is the only one in her town. Like she's refused to leave because that place has a lot of meaning. That physical place in the world has a lot of meaning, obviously to like, you know, anyone. Like it's obviously very disturbing the idea of just being kicked out of your house for a reason that you can't, that they're like, oh, you can't see it. And we can't really tell you what it is because we probably don't even really know ourselves but you got to go. There was another one that I found very interesting and very related and very relating to this idea of displacement of being removed from place. There was this family and their door of their apartment or their house was like a family heirloom, for, a fairly family, family heirloom for the father. And he ended up having to go back for it. Like I have, like if we're going somewhere, I have to take this door. Like it was a tradition for like their, his, his family to die, like laying on that door imbuing a specific like not like a, in that case a specific object but then in the case in general of a specific place with that part of you like this is a part of me and i can't leave this and so when it came time for forced evacuations and people had to leave and stuff i argued that was a way of understanding it uh, of understanding chernobyl as i understand like i understand chernobyl through the fact that it has, dis- it has displaced me I understand not, not not so much through my physical place, but through my lack of this physical place, like the lack of this physical anchoring is kind of how it's understood and like shrunken down to a way that's like manageable like this. Like I don't, it's like, I don't get the radiation. Like that's not explained to them and this and that, but like they understand the fact that this is, this is a big deal because I was kicked out of my home and that's how I'm going to understand this. The second way that I, my my oh, quick quick backstory. My original my original idea for this, I, I was really I was really interested in the um in like the imagery of of soldiers, the presence of the military and warfare, and like in like kind of just the popular the imagine like a, a lot of the interviews just resonated a lot when they, they talked about the presence of the soldiers and how it was a very big military operation and stuff like that, and it got them wondering what's actually going on. Like, is there a war going on? That kind of thing, and uh, I ended up turning that into a point <laughs> to a point is overall paper, which I'm very happy about because I, I, I found that very interesting. And so the second way that I, that I saw that there was this hankering in, in place, it, not so not again, not physical place, but now like the social, I guess, headspace of war mm. was a thing that many of the testimonies kind of defaulted back on. Like a lot of them understood, you know, 
I think everything that's happening is very much like a war because think about the context, right? Like they're like they you know they're this they're, you know the USSR and the Russian stuff there. It's people who have lived through wars and won wars and such, like since World War II and all sorts of like and now the cold at that at that point the Cold War and stuff. Like there's always this imminent fear of things are going to hit the fan potentially any time now. And of course, when Chernobyl blows, the government, the UN, the USSR government is pitching this idea that it was espionage. You know, it was that like, that was the original kind of understanding or like the, like the assumption and the story they sort of ran with, I think for a bit, like there was very little communication and then they said, well, it could be espionage. And so then, okay, wartime. Like now, now we're in the headspace of war. But I found in a lot of the testimonies, like that was the way that they understood it. And that's because that's a way that they can understand. Like it, it's, it's a cold comfort, right? Just being like, okay, I get it. Wartime. I understand this, mm. but that's just the nature of that, you know, that place at the time. Right. And, um, rather than just trying to figure out, this is something I don't understand. It's no, this is something I understand because it's war. And I understand that. Like, I, like, I, like we've been through it and we know how this works, like forced evacuations, soldiers are being sent off somewhere armed. Mm. Like one of the ruminations that, um, and in the intro that Alexievich had that she wrote herself, for a little thing herself, you know what I mean? Like she really penned, like the idea is pen herself was wondering, cause she heard, she was, she was, a, she, she herself is one of like the people that was there. Like she's a witness herself to, to, to Chernobyl. Is her wondering, she's wondering, like, they're going off, the soldiers are going there with these guns. What are they going to shoot at? There's nothing there to shoot at. Like, it, it's a natural thing. Or not natural, obviously, but it's, it's a non-corporeal thing. You can't, you know, what's the point of bringing, a, bringing an assault rifle in there, you know? But just that imagery of these armed soldiers heading off to somewhere invokes wartime, right? And then obviously the government leaning into this idea just to kind of, in a weird way, settle people settle them in a way that they that they know like we've we've done this before kind of thing they haven't done reframe it yeah reframe it yeah frame it into a context that they would understand yes exactly that yeah Yeah. and so like yeah like so in in that way that's another way that kind of the hyper object the unknowable hyper object of chernobyl is kind of brought down into a, a way that they get it by understanding it as a war and finally i looked at as an inversion of the dynamic of a human attachment to place by making it a place place being attached to the to the person like whether they like it or not okay because a lot of the testimonies as well talked about how difficult it was to relocate like when because because there's this there was this massive stigma of you know like this massive social i guess fear and derision of chernobyl people right you're from the radiation zone you are in, you know you're gonna like irradiate you know, your, your kid's going to go irradiate my kid at school or something like that. Right. Like it, it was like, like the fear of it being this, of like the fear of it being this like disease or whatever. Right. And so that made it very difficult for people to resettle and stuff. There were, there was a, a few, there's accounts of like people saying, parents saying their kids are being made fun of at school and call, getting called names like glowworm and stuff like that. Right. And, um, and so I thought that was interesting because that's kind of a switch, right? Like, now the place is attached to the person unwillingly, like it won't, it, it won't let go like this, like you, like they're forever, like they're labeled socially as people from Chernobyl, like they're defined by their place, but not in a way that they want to be. A little bit like somebody coming from the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong part of town. 
Yeah. Um, and having that stigma, but on a much larger, larger scale. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, similar issues, of course, that we all, that we're always going to face. Like, it's similar issues like immigration and stuff that we always face today in terms of like racism in the country, within, within society and such. But like in, in this way, it's like places explicitly attached due to this disaster. The, the hyper object at- finds a, finds a home in this way in the place, in the place attachment to the person, like the inversion of that, of that dynamic. That's really interesting. This could be completely off off the mark, but um, something like we're living through with the pandemic could could also be viewed with this lens and these different um, different ideas that, that that you're talking about. Like it looks like it's a useful framework for understanding like these things that are so big that we can't really wrap our heads around them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very easy case to make saying something like the COVID pandemic is uh, is, a, is a hyper object. I think it's a very, I think it's a very, very logical equation and a logical connection to make and stuff. A lot of the, you know, the horrible like anti, anti-Asian sentiments that have, were flying around during the beginning of COVID, and you know, obviously they're still around, but we're we're very we're very prominent at the beginning of COVID. Do it like do it presumably beginning in China and such, right? Like I was thinking of some ideas of like I automatically love like people saying I automatically don't like you and don't want to associate with you because you come from this place that this horrible thing happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in 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 those ways, I made the I I made the case for uh, for Chernobyl, the hyper object of Chernobyl being made, the unknowable being made knowable, in a like in in a, in a small scale way, right? Not in this all encompassing way, but in a way that these these people who you know may or may not have any background understanding this sort of thing, like knowing it in a way that they can get, and that's by anchoring it understanding it in different conceptions of place of like a certain thing that they can grab onto. And that usually associates to like, you know, like I said, I guess the lack of the lack of their home or like the remove the removal of physical place. And then the social, like the social headspace of war. And then the unwilling, the unwilling, almost like, like, not symbiotic, I suppose, because that would imply something good, but like, uh, like it being attached to them unwillingly. So you're doing your MA research work with, a very different piece of literature, but also looking at some of these ideas of place and and exile and attachment to space. So you're working on Paradise Lost by Milton. Um, could you just tell us, just in case our listeners aren't familiar with it, just a um, a few a few lines about because I understand it's quite a massive work. Um, just a just a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so. John Milton's Paradise Lost is written 1663, an early modern, early modern uh, piece of poetic work, widely considered to be like one of the best pieces of literature just straight up ever written, which is a very mighty title <laughs> that, that that many that many people, many people I know and, you know, probably myself would hold uh, <laughs> up, up to it. Um, it's it is it takes the form of epic poetry. So that's blank verse so no rhymes but it's just long like if you, if you look at the text it's very imposing because it's 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 12 books i don't even know how many lines many thousands and thousands of lines and you know looking at it as a modern reader it's a very difficult text to kind of pierce because it's so unlike anything that we read today no quotation marks to signify when people are talking that kind of thing oh dear <laughs> oh yeah it's it, it's it's a read 
Uh, I remember having to read a book of it in uh, first year, and that was something else. <laughs> so why did you choose this um, this this work? I mean, obviously, um, something really resonates with you, and it, um, to to kind of take on take on the challenge of of working with with such a big and such a um, prestigious, I suppose, work work of literature. Yeah, well, like originally learning about it, obviously, I said my first encounter was with it was in first year, but in depth encounters came later, working in a, a learning from Dr. Elizabeth Sauer in one in one of her third year classes that was on early modern literature, and her being a very prestigious scholar of Milton, we had we spent a lot of time at Paradise Lost, and um, I was just really fascinated by what was being done in there. Like the book, like the, the poem itself is essentially a, is, is a poetic retelling of the book of Genesis from the Old Testament, from the Bible, right? And so it's got Adam and Eve. It's, it's all about like the fall, like the fall from grace of Adam and Eve. But it, it, it doesn't just rip the ideas word for word because it's a very small part of the Bible. Like it doesn't take long to cover the Genesis story, but Paris loss is massive. It doesn't, it doesn't do the creation story and like God made this on day one, God made this on day two. We instead start with Satan and his fallen angels, the devils being falling into hell and being imprisoned in hell after their rebellion, right? And then they, the fallen angels elect or Satan, rather Satan more so chooses himself to go up and exact their revenge in a way that isn't so overt, Right. Not just outward, outright warfare, because, you know, they tried that and it didn't go well. And so more so through deceit and corruption. And so Satan finds his way to go to God's new, new thing that he's very much focusing on, that being Eden and that being humanity. And so then the story goes from there. Satan corrupts Eve by tempting her to eat from the forbidden fruit. And then Adam follows suit and then they fall from from their divinity and they're forced out of Eden. Right. But yeah, just enforce myself. I have a background in like, I went to school and like for, to Catholic elementary school and Catholic high school. So I was very familiar with like the, I guess, I guess the source material, <laughs> very familiar with that, with those ideas. And so I was able to pick up on that, um, you know, quickly. Which I think, I, I think just in, in general, I think being, Going to Catholic school and stuff was a, was a big boon to my English education because a lot a lot of a lot of stuff is derived from the Bible and from religion and stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of a leg up in my opinion when it comes to studying English literature. A lot of that, a lot, lot of that comes from that. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, just learning like looking at it in the ways that like it was some a few years ago, so I can't remember exactly the ways that we looked at it, but just the way that like we were taught it and the way that Doctor Sauer like talked about it was mm-hmm. with such passion and stuff because she loves it, right? It's her you know, and, um, it made me think I really want to do something with this. Like I really resonate with this text. Like I have no, like I haven't resonated with any other thing that we've, that I've read really. And, um, it's kind of daunting because, you know, as I said, it's a very, as we said, it's a very, like, obviously it's a very canonical, very canonical work. Right. And it's very, it has no shortage of scholarship. There's probably, many miles of books written about it. Um, so kind of finding, finding a unique angle, um, might, might feel a little bit daunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And like, but I, I, I was and am determined, right? Like, cause I, I it's just, it's something, it's something so cool. So you're looking at taking the ideas about place and attachment with place, and then looking at that in terms of the garden of Eden and, 
expulsion from the Garden of Eden? Yeah. So the kind of ways that I am focusing in on it, I'm because as I said earlier, I'm I'm very much and it has it's kind of a recurring theme here in my in my scholarship. I'm noticing is a uh, my interest in place and the and like you know like the environment being a storyteller of its own in a way and like the way that people interact with place being very revealing of you know what they value and stuff like that and that kind of thing and so that being another way of understanding these characters that have been studied for 400 some year almost 400 years or whatever right like uh, i'm looking at scholarship with an eco-critical kind of lens to milton which might seem strange because it's this very old text and ego criticism wasn't really a thing, but there are ways to read Milton Greenlee, which I think are very interesting that I'm looking into. One specific book that I'm really drawing on for a lot of that is Ken Hiltner's Milton and Ecology. That book deals a lot with the attachment to place and like the, like, like, and like human attachment to the environment and the way that that kind of, and just the way that Milton kind of reshapes and reframes Christianity in in a very green way. And so I want to look at that. And I want to look at characters and their relationships to place. And I was also very interested in Satan and hell. And those first opening two, three, those first opening uh, two books of him being in hell. And they, they build pandemonium, this structure. I'm interested in structures as well, right? Like there aren't that many to speak of, but I think the, their, their presence is interesting. Like how stuff like how pandemonium being the castle of Satan's castle, more or less his fortress that he builds, that they builds in hell with all these little devils and such um, being an inversion of what God has up in heaven, God of God's heavenly castle, that sort of thing, like the implications of that. And like, yeah, cause I suppose heaven and hell are places as well. Um, I was thinking nature spaces. So I thought garden of Eden, but yeah, heaven, heaven and hell as places that you can look at with these same, these same ideas. Mm-hmm. But yeah, of course though. Yeah. Garden, the garden of Eden yeah. as well, of course. Right. Like this, that, that being like obviously the central focal point and um, yeah, just the relationship to that very like, you know, natural setting. Right. And the way, the way that these different characters, you know, view it like Adam and Eve seeing it as this, obviously this, this part of them, right. Like very much seen as a part of them. Like when, when Eve get when Eve gets the news that they, that they got to leave, Right. The first thing she says in, in, in Paradise Lost is essentially who's going to take I have to leave my plants like I, I have to leave these flowers that I care for. Like it's that stewardship of the earth is the immediate thing that comes to mind is, well, who's going to who's going to take care of this? Because it's a symbi- it's a relationship, it's a relationship that I, you know, that I have to have with these things. And uh, and then when Satan first finds Satan ruminates a lot on his placelessness, like there's that very famous quote saying, you know, the mind can make heaven of hell or, or, or a hell of heaven, like the mind is its own place. And essentially saying, I don't need place, right? I can, I can do whatever I want. But then when he gets to Eden, he just thinks in awe of the splendor of it. And he falters a little bit, reflects on his own decisions in a way, obviously eventually comes to the decision that we know. And then I like, I want to combine that with looking into uh, literatures of exile and like since survival narratives and stuff, because there's a lot of exile from places. There's a big idea Throughout it, that's what we, that's what it builds up to, right? Is Adam and Eve's eg- exile from Eden and how they reckon with that, and like this yeah. being forced out of a place that you find very that you're that you're attached to, like very much going off of ideas that I um, uh, worked with in the Alexievich essay, talking about how people are displaced from their homes and how that kind of helps to frame things, right? I don't have concrete things yet because it's still in the early phases, right? But um. I'm very, very excited. We had to do up an annotated bibliography for the the main, I guess, 
MRP class and uh, even just doing that and like going through my sources. I have, I have a number of texts and a number of articles that I've compiled and being able to see the connections forming has been very inspiring. Just the, this intersection here is what I'm really interested in exploring and like building, helping to build an intersection or exploring one if there, like, if there already kind of is one of attachment to place and then also exile, right? And what does it mean for it to be like paradise, reading something in Paradise Lost as a survival narrative, a survival of exile? Yeah, that's that's one of the challenges with with um, doing my grad student interviews this time of year is that you're all kind of at that um, very exciting phase where you're just starting to get into it and get a sense of what you're really going to do. So you're doing a major research project, which... I understand is a little bit shorter than a thesis. Yeah, it's 30 to 35 pages. Yeah. And then that gets marked by by several professors, right? That re- that read through that read through it and through it and, and assess it. Yeah, come time when it's actually, you know, finally done in August. Um because the writing begins and after, after after the winter term the writing begins. All the prep work is in winter and we have the proposal draft due in May. I just came out of the class where we were talking about it too. Actually, it's funny. Spent three hours chatting about proposals and such, but the proposal is done in May, and then from there, it's off to the races for the summer, and you just write like an animal, from what I understand. So, for potential students who might find the idea of doing like a thirty-page paper really daunting, like, are are you kind of guided? through the process somewhat like you mentioned that you had to do an annotated bibliography like you're not just kind of set loose and then you have to <laughs> to come up with it yourself but you're kind of guided through through the steps to get there oh no you're very much guided yeah like, like oh what a nightmare that would be so some, sometimes sometimes <laughs> it feels like you're let, we're let loose and it's just like okay worry about it you know <laughs> like because you gotta remember, like, we're juggling because you and when you go into the english grad thing at least you're juggling your coursework and you're also juggling TA responsibilities you get TA mm-hmm. contract as well, right? Like for usually for first years, I'm TAing first years at the time. Yeah, like we're, there are like checkpoints of, okay, have this done for it by then. But a lot of it, a lot of it will come down to you motivating yourself to get started on it. Like finding supervisor, like, you know, a supervisor and a second reader. You got to have the supervisor by, well, two days ago, I believe was the deadline for having a supervisor. Luckily, I have had a, like a, Dr. Sarah has, help, has been helping me with the process ever since I brought the idea up to her two summers ago of, apply, of, of applying, right? So she's she's been on board all the way and she's been a massive help just in finding, just in giving me things to look at. And, uh, but like, it, it, it all depends on your individual relationship with the supervisor, but the supervisor is going to help a lot too. Like I know some, some, some in my cohort have a very like, they chat with their supervisor almost every day kind of thing, whether it be about the project or about whatever. Whereas like myself, Dr. Sauer and I will meet like once a month or so, so far, just in these early stages, because there's not much to talk about or think about right now, because we're, we're still in the early stages, right? But in that class, whoever is the, uh, and I know Gail Coskin Johnson is still the GPD next year for, you know, for those that may be listening or interested in going into it. The grad program director. So kind of the point of contact in the department for, yes. for grad issues. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, like there's, you know, there all there there will be someone who is there to go to and who will guide you on that path. You're not just set loose here, write a 35 page paper by August, right? It's 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 a very it's a structured process, but also one you have to motivate yourself to mm-hmm. keep doing. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Tiane, um, and I think that's kind of neat that master students um, get the opportunity to. Well, I was going to say be in the classroom, but with various 
you know, it depends now if classes are in person or online, um, but to be interacting with students and actually guiding seminars. So could you give us a, just a little preview of what that, what that experience has been like for you and maybe how it's um, influenced your own, your own thinking and learning as a, as a grad student? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love teaching. I'll be honest. I, I, I very much enjoy it um, because well, teaching is what I wanted to do coming in to Brock in the first place all those many years ago. Right. And so having an opportunity to do that, I was very excited at the fact that when I when I learned that, oh, you're also getting a TA contract, like that's awesome. Like I get to teach people. That's great. Teach people things I love. And um, I'm working. I'm, I'm a TA for Dr. Netta Gordon's first year class, 1F95. She's amazing. Right. Like she's, she's an amazing professor and she's so pedagogically inclined. Like she's, she's, she comes up with these very interesting ways and like very good ways of, of like for first years to begin to wrap their head around literature and like English studies and such. So she's great to work with and great to have as essentially as a boss, <laughs> as, as my boss, essentially. And, um, but uh, the students, like the way that this class, like essentially fully online, the lectures are in, she, she does them in person in Sean O'Sullivan but she uploads them online and stuff, right? My seminars are fully online on Teams. Honestly, it's a good experience. Like I, Dr. Gordon encouraged us to allow for chat participation as well. And I find that a lot of my, like pretty much all of my students use the chat exclusively. We're given, we're given, we're given a certain, like we have a, we have a plan given out to us and about what we need to hit on for the week, but we're obviously we're given a lot of freedom. I have a very casual demeanor with them. I'd be friendly and this and that. I'll make jokes. I try and teach it into a way that I like teach the things and, put the concepts in a way that it's easier to understand by relating it to my own things and kind of relating it to them in a way. Like it's, it's been a very rewarding experience. Cause then you, cause then you get that odd thing where it's like, Oh, where you get feedback, the feedback from a student or whatever. And they say, Oh, my TA taught me this. And I applied that. And that just kind of made my heart glow. <laughs> it made me very happy. I'm like, Oh, I was talking about it for like a week. Yeah. <laughs> I was so happy. But it's been very rewarding. Yeah, I I um I totally get that that it's um it's a real it's a real high um so to speak when you when when you hear from a student um anonymously or or not um some, sometimes they 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 do tell you directly that uh you know you've you've made a difference you've helped them understand something. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, so I know in our conversation that you and I had uh before this, you were mentioning that you had some other interests as well, just kind of beyond looking looking at place. And we've got a few minutes left, and I just wondered if you wanted to um, share a little bit about some of your other interests that you're still looking at. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to be presenting a paper at um, one of Brock's, I guess, in-house conferences, uh, the SCLA Symposium. The topic is on pressures and like so that being societal pressures and such. And so a thing that I, this is my first time my first, like, I guess, extensive time dabbling in this idea of looking at, I want to look at video games, which is obviously, which is a, a favorite pastime of mine <laughs> when I actually have time to do it, which is not now. But, um, not during grad school. <laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> Although, you, I mean, you do have to make time to, to oh, yes. take stress breaks for sure. <laughs> oh, yes. It's funny you mentioned stress and pressure and stuff. Uh, what I want to talk about in this paper, I'm going to be looking at a specific video game, Destiny 2, which is a of like a, a, an online multiplayer first person shooter. And um, I want to look at, we'll pull away from the idea that video games are just this tool of, that was like this as maybe a popular understanding of video games as this tool of complete, of just depressurizing and disconnecting from the world. 
in a way that just removes pressure. I want to instead posit that games like Destiny 2 instead replace those big pressures of the world that we might feel on us, especially in times of COVID and such, instead replace it with a series of maybe micro pressures, which are more manageable in the fact that they're just constrained to the game world. And so things that, you know, as a longtime player of that video game that I have, uh, I have experienced many micro pressures playing that game, but things I really want to talk about and look at are how you are constantly able to like any, anyone in your, anyone can like inspect your character and look at the weapons you have equipped and the, the, the gear that you have. And they essentially can make a judgment. Like they can, they can see how long you've been playing. And from there, you know, obviously the equation of time of more time played equals better player is not so simple, but too many it is. And so you, you can constantly essentially be observed and judged in many different ways in, you know, without you knowing, sometimes people will let you know. And that's never fun. There's always the fear of that. But, uh, and there are instances in the game where you're, there, there are specific encounters in the game uh, where it's activities that you play where you're co- cooperating with five other people. And if you, where you solve puzzles or you fight bosses or whatever sort of thing, right? And um, if your team fails, if you all, if you all die, or whatever, then you're presented with a sort of a sort of a, a sort of post death screen saying, which is a chart saying who did what, essentially, essentially saying who contributed the most and who didn't. And so from there, with the wrong people you're working with, it's very easy for them to get very angry at somebody who said, "Oh, you didn't do this." I can very clearly see it, and that can like this being that like constant measurement and that like that it then it then being presented to everyone that can induce a lot of pressure. And then I also want to look at. Um, I also want to look at uh, like the way that the way that this game specifically and a lot of video games do a lot of online video games operate is they operate on player retention. They want to like their metrics are who's playing right now, not so much game sales because the game itself is free to play, but who's playing right now and how many people are playing on a day and this and that. And the way that they do that is they use this popular concept called FOMO or fear of missing out. And so they will they will rotate in rewards, cosmetic rewards or purchasable options, whether with real money or not, um, which is a whole other thing with real money or not. But mainly what I'm, what I'm referring to is how it's the pressure, it induces a pressure to come and get on right now to get this thing or it might not come back. So, so, then, you, so then you're looking at how, that, how pressure created within the game kind of is a substitute for all of these pressures like with COVID and whatnot um, that we can't control or manage. Is it like, is, is that the yeah, idea? Yeah. Like just like it, rather, rather than a video game being a place of just getting rid of all the pressures of life, it's rather replacing these pressures with something that may be more manageable or at least on a smaller scale. Cause while FOMO is not manageable, it's still on a smaller scale that you can reckon with a lot, a lot easier and just kind of deal with a lot easier. Yeah. So just as we wrap up, is, is there anything about the um, grad experience? I, I know we've kind of already talked, um, talked about the, the research process and, and, and TAIN. Is, is, is there anything that you wanted to mention that, um, about being a grad student that um, we haven't covered? Yeah. Um, my cohort is awesome. I just, <laughs> just shout them out. I love, I love all, all eight of them that, that I'm with, a group, of, a group of nine, at least, at least the full-time cohort. Um, they're great. And like being in, in the, I'm glad that I'm, I'm in the grad room recording this. And this space has been the site of so much just mutual, you know, 
trauma. Like, 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 I, I was about to say trauma, but uh, like, yeah, 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 trauma, I suppose, is how we there's, term it. There's usually. some tough times in grad school. There we are tough times in grad We can't school. pretend there's not. Yeah, but there's also a lot of good times. Like, like having, like, you know, to future cohort, few people that are considering doing grad school and stuff and coming to, to, the, MA, to, the, to the MA program in English here, you will, pro- like, you, like, make like you, you will make friends just in 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 just by virtue of you all doing the same thing right you know what i mean like we all have the same things to do and therefore thing you'll come together in that way but i'm very i'm very very fortunate to have a cohort that is just awesome there's a lot of good like grad school is very good to have like for for that community like just have have that sense of community that sense of bond like that 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 like that sense of bonding i suppose is very valuable to me i think is very important for a good grad experience Excellent. That's a great plug. Um, I, I was just going to say that in the in the interviews that that I do with with the grad students and and with with faculty as well, I I know sometimes there's a there's that stereotype, you know, kind of that if you're, you know, you're you're by yourself in a library with a book or something like that, and that's kind of humanities research, but it really isn't. It's really collaborative, and it's a really community oriented um, working working with your peers um and and with and with professors so i'm so glad that you're enjoying it (laughs) yeah thank you i'm very glad too it's been a very good time and i'm looking forward to all the group writing sessions i'm sure we'll have in the summer when we're all writing our mrps i know we've been commiserating (laughs) oh yes oh yes every day (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us today yeah thank you for having me it's been a real pleasure Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, brockuca slash humanities. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound assistance for this episode is provided by Mitch Kogan. Theme music is by Khalid Imam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Thank you.